I took the money and could not write this book for a, quite a long time. You know, really, probably it was six years, maybe even seven years of full time waking up every day and starting on page one. I mean, it's the worst time of my life. It was nearly broke me. Horrific. I mean, and I just didn't know what to do. And I and I um, and and I felt the promising career that I had had just drifted away. You know, suddenly I had no agents. The publishers wanted the money back. I was a defeated and forgotten person in my own mind, anyway. And I had a close friend, a college friend, who had.、Um, Who had gone to Wall Street,、uh, you know, and made a ton of money already. So, you know, this is sort of mid '80s, a ton of money, and, you know. And he had started his own, you know, made this money and started his own firm, and you know, was like,、um, you know, amazing. And I remember he, year six or seven, he kind of sat me down and said, "You've become an embarrassment to everyone who knows you.、Um, you have got to stop." And then he said, "So just come downtown. I'll give you an office, and we'll do deals." First, I had no idea what deals were, and I didn't even quite know how to get downtown—place I had never been.、Uh, but I said, "Okay, I am on board. I will be there."、Um, and、um, you know, and I hurried to get a buy a suit and a briefcase, and suddenly I was on Wall Street, and it was. The best time. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host Megan Daum, and this is the first episode of 2022. Hope you had a safe and adequately festive holiday and New Year. Thanks for waiting an extra week while I pulled some things together. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is legendary journalist Michael Wolf. I'm going to tell you more about him in a minute, but first,、uh, I just want to thank everyone who responded with such love and support to last year's sign-off episode, which, in case you missed it, was a monologue, an audio essay. I think these things are sometimes called now, where I spoke with pretty brutal honesty about how this podcast is going, where it's been a struggle, where it's been a success. I've had lots of people join the Patreon and have received some really extraordinary expressions of support,、uh, for which I'm truly grateful. I have also, at the suggestion of some listeners, implemented a donor button on the podcast website. I know that some people are not into Patreon for any number of reasons, and so if you'd like to support the show with a one-time contribution of any amount. Uh, having nothing to do with Patreon, you can go to theunspeakablepodcast dot com and click the donate button. That said, joining the Patreon does give you a lot of benefits, including if you join at any level, early ad free access to the show, early access to the show without ads. That's what I mean,、um, and that's now relevant because it seems that the minute I moved the show off of Podcast One onto Libsyn, I got a sponsor. So you will hear me reading an ad about halfway through this episode. I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to say that, but anyway, my guest, journalist Michael Wolf, 
is best known for his juicy and deeply reported dispatches from various corridors of power. He's written many books, notably a biography of Rupert Murdoch, The Man Who Owns the News, and his 2018 book about the Trump administration, Fire and Fury, was easily the most talked about political book of the Trump era. That was followed by Siege, Trump Under Fire, and Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency. His most recent book, Too Famous, collects selected works of biographical journalism from over the last two decades, including lengthy treatises on Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner. Um, The word perhaps most associated with Michael is access. He has a way of achieving uh, what often seems like astonishingly close contact with sources who are willing to carry on as if he's not there at all knowing full well he's writing everything down. And that has made him pretty famous in his own right and prone to his own controversies. But I invited him onto the podcast mostly for other reasons. I wanted to talk about writing itself, the craft of it, the business of it, the psychological toll it can take on authors and their subjects alike. And we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including how his first big break came from a tip from his mother and how his second piece was for Ms. Magazine, of all places. We also get into uh, one of my perhaps irrationally favorite subjects, the improbable lionization of Ronan Farrow, which Michael writes about in Too Famous, but that no magazine would let him write about before that although I should say that that part has been excerpted in Los Angeles Magazine, so good for them. I will also say, finally, that you may notice a rustling sound periodically throughout this interview. It's not because Michael was walking through the woods, but because he was using AirPods, which often work just fine, except when they don't. Someday my professional studio will come, or not. Here's the interview. Michael Wolf, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me. You have a nearly 50-year career in journalism, and it's been, thanks continues for, to thanks, be. Thanks Is that for, right? Thanks I for said remind, nearly, reminding I said, me. Yes. I said no, nearly. No. I said nearly. Um, it's been and continues to be an extraordinary career. You've had access to extremely powerful people. You're Rupert Murdoch's. Are you his official biographer, or is it just that you have written a biography of him? Well, I think I'm his cursed biographer. Okay. Um, but yes, I come as close to official as I believe anyone at this point. Okay. So uh, you've really done a lot of things. You've co-founded a news organization. At one point, you were involved with a group of people trying to buy New York Magazine. You're sometimes you sometimes find yourself at the center of your stories. So there's certainly a lot of conversations to be had about your subjects and about the people you've written about. And I do want to talk about some of those people. But as I mentioned to you before, what I'm actually most interested in talking with you about is your relationship to writing, um, just what moves you as a journalist and your thoughts about your craft. So to that end, I want to start by asking you to go, way back to the beginning of your career, not quite 50 years ago, just, you know, back to the beginning. I believe your first piece shortly out of college was back in 1974 for the New York Times Magazine. Can you tell us about that piece and how it came about? Uh, uh, sure. I, actually, I was, in, I was a junior at Columbia 
at the time. Okay, you were still in college. Uh, yes. Wow. And I was working at the New York Times. So I was a copy boy at the New York Times. Um, possibly the, the worst job. I was going to say the worst job, but it's actually one of the few jobs I've ever had. But it was terrible and I was suffering beyond belief. And I mean, was the, it was one of those things, the thing that I had always wanted to do to go to work for the New York Times. And I got this job. Um, and, uh, within 10 minutes, I, I knew I, I was, uh, this was not only was this not for me, but if this was what life was about, I was not going to make it. What did that mean? What does that mean being a, a copy boy? Presumably copy boy is not a, a job that exists, at least in that description anymore. But what was involved? It, you, I mean, it was the entry level job and you, you literally moved copy around the newsroom. And then you also had to go out and get hot dog orders for Okay. Uh, for editors. So you carry, you actually carried it around. Like you, you carried, carried in your yeah. hand, you took copy from, from one, from a reporter to an editor, from, from an editor to a copy editor, from the copy editor to the backfield editor. And you moved, you circulated around the newsroom. You weren't allowed to stop. No. Okay. Just like working on an assembly line. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it was, um, in, in the newsroom in, the, in those days, you know, it was, it, it was filled with smoke, but also that had the feeling of these lifers, these, these men of, of, of indeterminate age, but not young, many of whom I remember had ticks, you know, their heads would go back constantly or, or um, you know, or their arms would go up. Um, I mean, it was like, oh my God, is this what, what I have to look forward to? And were they saying things like, get on the horn, Charlie? Was it that kind of vibe? Yeah, yeah, but not so robustly. It was, <laughs> okay. was everyone seemed, seemed in the midst of a great depression, uh, personal depression. Um, at any rate, this was 1974, and um, Patty Hearst had been kidnapped. Um, that was the, the running story, the big story. And, um, and then a certain of her kidnappers were, were discovered. Actually, there, there was, a, they were killed. There was a, there was a, there was a shootout. Um, and, um, at that point, hours after this, my mother called me. Now, my mother had been uh, a newspaper reporter herself, a daily reporter for many, many years. Um, um, and she called me and she said, did you see, did you see the news? Um, yes. Um, uh, and did you see, did you see who kidnapped, uh, Patty Hearst? Um, and, and I, and I was vaguely aware of this, that a, a woman by the name of Angela Atwood had kidnapped her and something is sort of vaguely registered. Um, and, my, and my mother said, said, that's, uh, you know, that's Angela DeAngelis, the girl who grew up next door. To you, grew up next door to you. Yes, and I was like, "Oh." Mm. And my mother said, "No, no, no. You're you're not you're not getting the point. This is your story." And I and I kind of you know it kind of suddenly clicked, and I thought, "Oh yes," and um, uh, oh my god, and um, and I made in the you, you know this was a sort of a tumble in in my mind. I mean, I was 19 years old. Um, but, but I, I got it and I, and I made an excuse. Uh, this was on the newsroom on the third floor. And I ran up to the magazine, which I believe was on the seventh floor. And I, and I vaguely knew who the, 
the the proper person to see was actually a man by the name of Harvey Shapiro. He had a reputation as the meanest man in journalism. Um, and I, I approached him with an, an enormous fear and trepidation. And I, and I kind of laid this out probably in a confusing way. The girl next door to me, Patty Hearst, and, and he kind of listened a couple, a couple of times and he grunted and he said, okay, we'll commission it. Wow. Not even on spec. They were going to, they were actually going to commission it. Yes. They, wow. And then I, I went downstairs to the newsroom. I made an excuse. I, I was sick. I had to go home. Um, I, I, I went home and, and, um, and my sickness lasted for, uh, for a week or so. And, and I wrote this story and, and it was immediately kind of, kind of transformed me where, where I was. I was able to quit the newsroom, thank God, and begin a, a magazine career. And uh, as I say, I've hardly ever had a job since. Oh my gosh. So you were like, were you 20? Like wh- how old were you actually? I was, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think this was, as I recall in July, I was, yes, I think I was, I must've been 20 then 19, 20 something. And you were a student at Columbia? Yes. This is a remarkable story because so much of your career is marked by having access to people, either through some force of serendipity or by your own uh, wits and efforts. So it really started off, literally, you had access to this person. Okay, so what was the reporting process? Because, I mean, you you know, that's an interesting thing. And people are always saying, you know, how did you get such access and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, um, as though I do something and as though it's a gift or as though I've been, I've been lucky. And I just think so much of journalism actually is random. And if you have any gift, it's, it's to be attentive to the randomness or at least have a mother who is attentive to the randomness and seeing that, that glimpse that you have of something and then grabbing it and pursuing it. So I think everybody has this. It's just, uh, you know, are you sensitive to it? So what was the first step in your reporting of this story? I went home. <laughs> okay. You, yeah. you called in sick, but then like, did you like pick so up this the was phone? In, what did you yes, do? I, I mean, I was, I, I grew up in New Jersey. And so this was, you know, so I, you know, I, I, I went home to my parents' house and, um, and then began to call all of the people I could possibly, um, I had known, I had grown up with. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was, the, the story was laid out for me. It was, this was actually quite an, quite an easy story to report because I, I knew all the people who knew all the things, um, about her. And I, I mean, I didn't, I knew limited amount about the actual kidnapping of Patty Hearst, but I knew a maximum amount about how this person had grown up. And so were you, did you know how to conduct an interview? Did you like know what you were doing? Was your mother kind of whispering in your ear? How no, did it, no. I, I mean, I'm that I know how to conduct an interview. I, you know, um, I think, I think in a sense, everybody knows how to conduct an interview. You just have, you have questions. Um, yeah. Or, the opposite. I didn't know how to conduct an interview. And all you really have to do is, is get people talking about something that they're, that they want to talk about. And in this case, everybody was in, in my little town was obsessed with this, with this issue. 
And so how did the piece come out? Were you happy with it? I, yes, very much. I mean, I was happy that it, you know, that it, that it succeeded. It got published. I, um, and, uh, and yes, I think I was at the time particularly happy with it. So at that point, you knew you were not going to be happy being a copy boy. If this had not happened in this way, what do you think your trajectory would have been? Would you have found another way to write like a big splashy freelance piece or? How do you think things would have gone? I, you know, I have have no idea. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that I was, um, you know, I was already trying to 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 figure out ways to get out of there. In fact, this was my first published piece, but it was not the first piece I had sold. So the first piece I had sold was curiously to Ms. Magazine. And, and that, and that was published, I, you know, you know sometimes a, a, after this, but I was already, you know, it was, I think I, I understood that I didn't want that what I wanted to be was a magazine writer. And, and remember this was, this was the, the seventies, everything was happening in magazines. Um, um, what my old editor, the late John Homans called the, the late renaissance of the magazine business was happening at this point in time. I mean, you could, you could sort of walk up and down Madison Avenue and go from independent magazine to independent magazine to independent magazine, um, hawking your stuff. I mean, it was a, it was a brilliant time. That's funny because see, I always think of the nineties as the that kind of time for magazines, but the the nineties was just kind of the the last yeah, gasp and, of what you're describing. Yeah, and the nineties actually, you know, historically it already started to turn down at that point um, after the recession in the early nineties. I mean, I was very attuned to this. You know, the magazine business started to, you know, its 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 first spasm of of, of coming apart. And then you had this, this, you know, from, from sort of the mid eighties on that, that incredible consolidation so that there were few magazines as opposed to the 1970s where there was, I mean, I think at one point I actually counted up the independent magazines that were, that were, that were likely buyers of, 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 of long form journalism. And it was, you know, what, Several dozen. Like, I mean, we're talking Rolling Stone, Esquire. Yeah, and the New Yorker Village was Voice, still, the New, yeah, yes, New York right. Magazine. Um, um, I, you know, I worked, I, I, I went to work for a magazine called New Times, which was, you know, had a lively um, tenure of, you know, I don't know, a dozen years during this time. Right. And Ms. Magazine, I don't, it wasn't an offshoot of New York, but it was a Clay Felker uh, publication, right? No, no, it, it, it wasn't. It began life as an insert in New York Magazine, but right. was an independent owned by, I mean, controlled by Gloria Steinem. And I think that there was a foundation. Right. So, so what was your piece for Ms.? I had started, I, I had graduated Columbia, but I had actually started as one of the first co-ed classes at Vassar College. <laughs> um, I, I also went to Vassar College. Is that true? Did I know? Yes, this? it's true. Really? We're gonna we're gonna get to this, ah, and I think I, I think we might even be be from the same town in New Jersey. But um, let's uh, we'll, okay. we'll circle well, back yes. to that. Yes. So anyway, um, you know, I was I was I was there, and, um, and then I had come to New York because I had gotten this job at the Times and switched to Columbia. 
But I thought, okay, well, that's a subject. So, you know, again, it was that thing. What subjects do you have to write about? What subjects can you own? And that was, and that that immediately came to mind. So I I wrote that piece. So were you talking about what it's like to be a, a male a male feminist at Vassar and how to get how to get chicks uh, without trying whatsoever? Yes, you got that. And I and I remember that was a you know I had written I I didn't know this was a, the first thing I had written for a magazine and it was. You know, I wrote, I mean, I thought magazine pieces were very long. Um, and I wrote, you know, you know, 10,000 words. And, uh, and I remember, um, uh, uh, the editor at Ms. Magazine cut it down to 1200 words. Oh my goodness. That's painful. Nevertheless, nevertheless, (laughs) I thought, oh, great. You don't really have to work this hard. So. So, I mean, it seems to me like so much of magazine writing at that time, especially, I mean, presumably you were heavily influenced by the new journalists, Hunter S. Thompson, Joan Didion, Tom Wolfe, those kinds of people. I always feel like the approach often is there's a conventional wisdom about the culture. There's a way people are talking about the zeitgeist that's kind of been accepted as the official narrative. But I'm going to tell you about how this might be looked at in a different kind of way. Like, here's what you're missing. Here's what people are getting wrong about this. Was was that your approach at all? Like, what compelled you to to say anything at all? You know, I mean, I think that that is, I, I don't, I mean, that's that's interesting, and I, ha- I would have to think about if that is the yeah, if that was the general overall approach. But it was certainly my approach. So you might you might be right. I mean, that was, um, and 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 I think you're always looking for. I mean, you're looking for a story. I mean, how? What's the nature of a story? You need a reversal, and so so that was in terms of nonfiction terms. That's. Um, that was always that's a, a, a you know a, a pretty effective strategy. You think it's like this, but it's really not. It's like this, and then the ultimate strategy. You know, you go. You think it's like this, but it's really like this. Um, except then it turns out it's really like you thought it was. <laughs> that's right. You can cover all the bases. Well, so were you considered controversial? So when when the when the Patty Hearst story came out, like what was what was the angle? I mean, this this is somebody you knew. This was your neighbor. Were you in that story? Actually, let me ask you that. Was there an I narrator in that story? No, there 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 was not. I mean, that's partly because the New York Times Magazine, you know, they didn't you you didn't write with an I. That wasn't part of the convention there. Um, and so it was a direct. It was a very highly reported piece. And, and, you know, now that I say this, however, I am going to take that back because I just remembered um, the opening sentence of that in there is an I. I is the first word in that piece. What's the first sentence? Do you remember? I, um, I am looking at um, a picture, something like, you know, and then it was a yearbook picture that, I'm, that, I, that I described. And so you kind of just took care of it in that sentence. And then that was, you were letting the reader know that you did have some personal yeah, exactly, stake in this, but exactly, then, but then yes. moving on. So was it yes. controversial at all? Like were people angry or surprised? How did they react to the piece? Yes, you know, in, in, in those days, you didn't really know if people were angry. Right. 
I mean, it's a wonderful time. You, <laughs> no. Well, they would write a letter um, to the editor yes, if they were yes, so moved. Yes, there, there were. I, as I recall, there was there were some letters to the editor taking issue with something or other. Um, I'm curious. I, I, you know, I think that there might have been a, a some blowback. Um, some feminist blowback at that point. I don't really remember what the issue was. Um, About the Patty Hearst piece? Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a, a hazy recollection now. But, but it was a counter, you know, a counterintuitive piece, which is to say, you know, that this person was not really a radical terrorist, but in fact was an incredibly conventional person in every this is the, yes right. in the every banality of evil yes. the banality um, of evil uh, right exactly yes exactly okay and then not, I, I don't mean to dwell on these two pieces but I'll ask you one more question about the Ms. piece okay was there a reaction to to that did you get in trouble for for writing about being a male feminist at Vassar you know in again, Ms. Magazine? again yeah, there was little uh, you know tr- trouble was a was a per- only a peripheral thing in those days if any you know, one of the delightful things about your writing, you have a, a mischievous kind of, there, there's a mischievous flavor to your work. So, I mean, is it fair to say that that was part of the the fun for you? Like, were you were you kind of trying to get in trouble? Well, I, 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 as I said, there was no trouble then. It was, you know, it was presenting, you know, a less than intuitive take. So that became the new thing. Oh, oh, and that was actually something you, you usually got some attention for or got some compliments for. You know, was there much trouble? No. Nah. Well, so, I mean, this is something that comes up a lot when people ask me about writing. And I've also talked to other writers on this show. You know, it, what I feel like at that time, really up until the rise of the Internet, and I want to talk to you about that because you obviously were really involved in different various business ventures around that. The job of the writer was to say surprising things, provocative things, things that would be unsettling to the reader. And now fast forward all these decades, I sometimes feel like that's the opposite of the job. The job is to kind of just play into the confirmation bias of your existing audience. So yeah, do you have what's your thought about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're in a, in a moment now where controversy kills. But yet it sells, it sells and it kills at the same time. You know, I'm not sure it sells. I mean, um, you, you, you know, I, th- I think that if that controversy of a truly controversial nature is largely now eliminated, you know, the market for it is, is really limited, to say the least. We'll say more about that. I mean, I, I, I just don't think it's I, I don't think anybody wants it, um, you know, especially in a in a in a corporate world at some point on any project that's controversial, it's going to get stopped. I mean, I mean, or at, at least it's going to be um, encounter, uh, you, you know, some serious headwinds and vetting. So in order to get there, uh, you, you know, it's, I mean, the likelihood is that if you have that kind of project, it's not going to get there. Hmm. So your latest book, Too Famous, 
it's a compendium of pieces you've written you've written over the decades. I guess they go back as far as is two thousand. They go back yeah, as far as the early odds. Yeah, twenty yeah, years. There's a piece about there's a piece about Tina Brown that's from two thousand, and they go basically up until the present. And I, I'm curious about the title "Too Famous." I want to talk about that, but I also want to just highlight something that you say in the introduction that I I thought was really interesting. You know, you're talking about fame, and you write. An, ir- an irony is that fame is no longer a very exclusive position. At one time, real fame, like real wealth, was so rarefied that it existed as an exception to the rule, as a novelty. But like the growth of the financial industry that made so many people richer, the growth of the media industry has made so many people more famous. So you're talking about a, a cheapening of fame. But yet at the same time, the the people that you write about in this book, you know, Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon. I mean, these are these are people who are famous still by the old rules. You're not writing about like Instagram influencers. So I'm just kind of curious if you have thoughts about the kind of old version of fame versus a lot of what like I think people in their 20s would consider fame, which would be like a YouTube star and why you still think that it's been cheapened over the years. Well, I mean, it clearly has been been cheapened. I mean, we live in a world of, you know, fame is a commodity. Um, you know, whether it's a commodity because of of, of, of social media or standard media, um, uh, you know, everybody is is promoted to a, a level of everybody needs to be promoted to a level of fame. There aren't stars in the in in the old days, and everybody who is who is famous. You know, I mean, Tucker Carlson has an, you know, is the idea of of massive fame at this point. But Tucker Carlson has an audience of, you know, you know, a million and a half people, Um, you know, compared to old time fame. It's not famous at all. He's a niche figure. All of these people are somewhat niche figures. Um, You know, I can write about Rupert Murdoch, but, you know. You know, the truth is very few people actually know who Rupert Murdoch is. So, you know, we're, we're dealing in sort of concentric echo chambers. We know who Rupert Murdoch is. We know who Tucker Carlson is, you know, but outside of this, you know, you know, there are, I, I mean, very few people who have global fame other than Donald Trump. Right. You also talk a lot about at least in the introduction, you make reference to personality disorders. And this is something I think about a lot. I mean, you say, you know, just the way that fame has been, you know, you you say greater and greater levels of public recognition, media recognition became part of the, the scorecard. It gave an edge, arguably, you say, to those already tipping toward personality disorders. And then a little later, you say, we allowed broken personalities much more latitude now. Say more about that, because uh, I think that that is something, you know, we talk about narcissism all the time in the culture, like that word kind of doesn't mean anything anymore. But I think there's something going on with really, really broken people seeking fame and being able to achieve it in ways that they didn't used to. And then their dysfunction becoming not only the norm, but celebrated. You know, I, I think that's the, you know, that's the Donald Trump paradigm. I mean, here is a man who has, you know, for um, for almost the entirety of his adult life has 
lived only an external life. Um, I mean, he's, he was, it was just a search for attention and notoriety um, and, and a, on a constant basis. Therefore, there was no internal life left. And, and that's, that's what we've got. I mean, that's what he earned. He earned the notoriety he, he wanted because he was, because there, there, he reserved nothing for himself. He put his name on buildings. He was out every night. He was, he just sought and sought and sought, um, craved and craved and craved. And he turned himself into Donald Trump. This figure actually in, in Woody Allen's movie Celebrity, which is sort of, I think, early 90s, um, uh, Donald Trump plays himself a soulless celebrity. And, and, and I think that's the version. He's more famous than everyone else because he, he is more broken than everyone else. But anyone who is famous, I think, follows in those, those footsteps. Um, and even if they didn't mean to follow in those, those footsteps, once there, and the process of, of staying famous, which is as difficult as becoming famous or more difficult, um, is contributes to their um, ever developing psychopathology. Their maladaptive lifestyle. So do you think that they're, well, I guess you just sort of answered this. I'm trying to think is, was there ever a time where somebody could become famous, like just, you know, in a way that was kind of honest and authentic, or I guess authenticity and fame are just diametrically opposed or cancel one another out. I, I'm just trying to get at the, I'm just trying to get at the, at the dysfunction thing because you just, you see this more and more. And I guess, I guess no time like the present. I want to, I want to talk to you. I mean, I'll talk to you about a number of things in the book, but one thing that I was really, really glad to see was that you um, actually had the balls to call out the uh, who, who, the person, in my opinion, who is the most publicly dysfunctional and um, uh, misguidedly fetishized uh, person uh, in uh, in the public eye, and that is Mia Farrow and Ronan Farrow. So, can you just um, tell us about uh, the degree to which you've written about this family, written about Woody Allen? what you think of this family and their relationship to the public. Well, I, you know, I just thought, uh, thought that the Ronan Farrow story was a, was a strange and creepy story. I mean, I have no particular bias here, except looking at the story itself and saying there was something wrong with this. You know, he might be Frank Sinatra's son or Woody Allen's son, which by the way, would be very easy to, to figure out. Yeah, you um, would but, think this is a, no, yeah. <laughs> they haven't done that. But then, and then all of a sudden, when this comes subsequent to this come, coming out, he's then a television star <clears throat> or has his own television show. On, on what basis? Uh, I mean, he's never been on television before. He's never been a, a performer or a journalist, but suddenly he has a television show. And it's a terrible television show. Uh, it's, it's beyond terrible. I mean, it's, the kind of show that anyone without television experience would probably um, uh, find themselves doing, you know, wooden and stiff, uh, inarticulate. And then suddenly from, from there, he's, um, he's suddenly a, um, 
an investigative reporter, and he's investigating. He is famous because of, or or noteworthy because of, um, because he's blamed his father for an act of sexual abuse, which anybody in in a in a reasonable world has to has to question that. I mean, I know many people don't question we, we, that. I, apparently, we don't live in a reasonable world because but I in think the, most people you don't know, question with, it. With, yes, with any with any any just just reasonable logical bearing, um, you're going to say, "Hey, that is probably not true." So anyway, uh, the the guy who has propounded something that is probably not true is now the guy who is who is accusing in a devastating way people for the same thing. So we're trusting this person because and then let let me add because I have read the book that he that 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 he that he wrote early on a book curiously about diplomacy. This is this is Ronan's book. Oh, this is yes. his uh, okay, this is uh yes. when he was and, supposed to be a some kind of like United Nations. Yes, uh, you, you know, which he never seems to have had an actual job in diplomacy. But anyway, so he's written this book about diplomacy, which I will tell you, and I, I may be the only one who actually read it, is moronic. I mean, it's like, oh my God, you know. Um, How old was he when he wrote that? Was he like still in high school? He's just well, I, mean, kid. Yeah, I don't know. In his must <laughs> okay. must be must be in his early twenties or something. Who knows? What, what, what? This is like, what happened here? How did this happen again? And it's and it's the career all along. How did this this happen? And then suddenly he shows up at at, at the New Yorker and he writes. His writing is subliterate. And at the New Yorker, they have to seem to have to pair him with some somebody else. I mean, and it's it's weirdly not in any way writing that you would otherwise associate with the, with the New Yorker. I mean, it's tabloid, it's police blotter writing. It's not it's not, not barely writing. Um, so anything, all of these things add up, and you go and you go, what what is this about? Um, how did this how did this come about? How did Ronan Farrow get to be Ronan Farrow? So anyway, that's why I asked the question. And do you have an answer? What's your best I, guess? You know, I mean, I think it's you know, you know, because you make yourself in you know, you know, this is this is Ronan Farrow got born as a famous person, and his you know, and his um, you know, his family has functioned in the currency of 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 of, of fame. I mean, that's what what. They do. That's what Mia Farrow does. Um, so, so it's promotion, self promotion upon self promotion upon self promotion upon self promotion, and um, and then at the end of the day, you get this, you get this person who, who in my argument, because of all this, you have to see as a fundamentally unreliable narrator instead of. As the as he is now seen as a, you know, as the ultimate truth teller, saintly truth yeah, teller, hero of the Me Too movement. See, it's it's funny because I'm more interested in Mia Farrow. I see Ronan as his mother's son, and her level of and again, I, my listeners are going to be rolling their eyes because I'm sort of obsessed with this. But like, and I, you know, here's my armchair diagnosis. She seems like a borderline narcissist. And her level, her ability to, and here's a word I don't like to use, but there's no better one here, gaslight the public 
into being on her side and seeing her as a victim and a martyr in a situation that she clearly set up, you know, the idea that, that, you know, she would accuse Woody Allen of, of molesting Dylan in the middle of a, of a custody battle. And shortly after he was found to have taken up with Soon Yi, it's just all of these pieces. I feel like in a reasonable world, people would be able to decouple their visceral sort of repulsion to Woody Allen, if that's the way they feel, with any kind of basic thread of logic. Well, you know, also, also that that she has continued at the same emotional pitch for thirty years. Right. So, what frustrates me is that there doesn't seem to be any desire uh, among gatekeepers in the culture to set the record straight. The, the, the penalties for defending Woody Allen and questioning Mia Farrow are just too severe for anyone to, to, to well, risk. Well, I think that, yeah, no, I mean, that goes back to, the, to our earlier point. This is just controversy kills. Just stay away from controversy. So there, there's not an issue here of, of people actually agreeing with, or at least people of a certain age, and this really may break down on a generational basis, but of a certain age agreeing with, with, um, with Ronan Farrow in, in, in his campaign against Woody Allen. But nevertheless, you know, I mean, it's interesting to note, you know, Hachette, commissioned the book by 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 Woody Allen and did it in such a way specifically to avoid controversy um you know it was a super secret project and Allen was you, you know had to agree to all kinds of non-disclosure things so that this would not get out so they wanted to publish this book this is not an issue that they that they didn't want to publish Woody Allen's book they wanted to publish Woody Allen's book um, but they wanted to do it without or with the minimum amount of controversy. And then when it got out and when Ronan Farrow objected, they immediately canceled the book. Controversy. You have to wonder, why didn't they predict that? I mean, maybe that was the... Well, they did. They did predict that. I mean, they had a plan to avoid that, but the plan didn't, didn't work. Um, and, um, and at the last minute, with the book already printed... It got out too late, controversy, and um, and they canceled it. Where did you write uh, the piece that's in Too Famous? Uh, the, the the piece about Ronan. Where did that originally it, appear? It didn't. it didn't. It didn't. Oh no, no. Really? No. And even then, I, I had tried to write this for my then key relationship, which which was the Hollywood Reporter. Um, which would have been, I don't know, you know, um, 2016, 17 or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, this is a publication that I have an incredibly close relationship with, and they would not do it because of Ronan Farrow. Wow. I mean, it was interesting that Ben Smith, the media columnist at the New York Times, I think that was one of his first pieces right out of the gate. He did question uh, Ronan's journalistic. No. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I think this is, um, well, I, I don't know if, if there is, if there's a chipping away here and we should be happy about something, but I, uh, but possibly. 
Yeah, no, I but I thought it was interesting that there was never it it never really got picked up on. He kind of wrote the column and people said how brave and it was never spoken of again. Brett Stevens did the same thing uh in his column. And uh it just it's uh and and Daphne Merkin's piece in in New York magazine, um, I guess it, it was a it was a profile of uh Sun Yi primarily, and I guess Ronan got his hands all over it and there were a lot of uh, legal. There were a lot of concessions made. I just, I, I find it amazing. I feel like Mia Farrow just kind of controls New York media. Uh, the, the the conversation around the family is just completely unquestioned, and you know everyone from nice, you know, middle aged journalists on Facebook being absolutely uh, fawning over Ronan to anybody in high positions, I just feel like they should know better. That's what it comes down to me. Why don't people know better? That's the question. Or maybe they do. I, well, I think that they do know better. Um, you, you know, again, I mean, I mean, I think the thing is that, that you know, maybe just because of the, we, we, we live in this age of controversy, um, which we feel helpless in the face of, um, that, that everything else, any power we have to minimize it, we do. We're going to pause here for a brief message from our sponsor. You know, people often talk about going to therapy as if it's the easiest thing in the world. Well, in fact, it's hard to find a good therapist, and it's also incredibly expensive. But there is an alternative, and that is better help. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment, and you have your sessions the way you want them, when you want them, online. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients all over the world. There are counselors specializing in all kinds of things from depression to anxiety LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, everything you share is confidential. It's convenient. It's affordable. And best of all, as a listener to this podcast, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. You wrote a book in 1998 called Burn Rate. It chronicles your efforts to start a, a new media company, Wolf New Media. And the burn rate refers to the amount of money you burn through trying to get it going. And you eventually just give it up the and decide to yes. write a book about the whole thing. <laughs> and I understand that impulse. What did you think the internet was going to be back then? What did you get wrong about it? And what did you get right? Well, I think I got, in the end, probably I got everything wrong about the internet except that it was um, going to be consequential at a level that no one could imagine. But other than that, I mean, I knew nothing about technology. So I, I, I couldn't, you know, the, the nuances of what was going to happen here, and these weren't really nuances, that they were big, big things. In fact, I, I could, <clears throat> I just wasn't equipped to to foresee in any way. So why I mean, did you start the company? At, I was at the right point in trying to foresee them. And if I had, I would, 
I would not be me, I suppose. I, I started the company. I, it, it was actually a, a, a publishing scheme. I recognized that there was something going on here, and and you know people had a had a had a desire to know about it. So therefore, it was a great a great a great subject. Um, so I wrote about it, and um, and then I published this series of books, well, essentially guides to the internet on paper. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. You know, and they they sold bazillions of copies for a very brief window, and in that very brief window, you know, a bunch of of, of investors came along and said, you know, hey, you can be, um, you know, you can turn this into a technology company, um, and I took the money, and and um, bazillions of people started to be hired around me. Um, yeah, I, I I can remember thinking, how do you make this stop? I mean, these people just just suddenly are working for you. Um, and and I thought this had from the beginning, this kind of had doom written all over it. But you know, it it, it there was this incredible momentum behind it. How how could you not do this? Um, you know, this is you you sort of received an invitation to the future, and um, and and you had to take it. Um, and then of course. Uh, my company, along with virtually every other company, collapsed. Well, and then in 2015, you published a book called Television is the New Television, where you made the argument that all this fretting and prognosticating about digital media usurping legacy media was misplaced, that outlets like BuzzFeed would never be a match for Disney, for instance. Would you still say that today? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that was even that 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 television, the form of television, whether it was streaming or on television on cable, was and remained was and would remain the dominant form, um, and and I think that's been totally proven everywhere. So what are some of the things that you got wrong when you were starting the company? Were you like imagining, okay, everybody's going to be? I mean, were you thinking people were going to be using smartphones? Like, what what were you no, imagining the future? No. Were they being hovercraft, like writing their little blog posts or something? It, you know, I mean, I mean, it was. I think it was. I I just could not begin to imagine that that this was that this was a a, a world in which in which the the human participation would be so much less than the technological capacity needed to participate in that, if this makes sense. You know, so I, I'm a, you know, I'm a writer. I mean, I mean, you know, the internet was, this was suddenly this, this, this place of incredibly interesting programming, lots of things were happening. So you, you want to write about it and tell people about it and, and, and show people and that's all something I could understand. What I could not understand is that it would, in short order, be, become so big and so massive uh, that it would be impossible for um, a single person or, or thousands of people even to chronicle and to write about that you needed technology itself to process technology. And that would, you know, ultimately be what Google was. Um, um, but I couldn't even begin to get there. I couldn't begin to imagine that. 
you know, and no less the next generation, which would be, which would be social media. Um, that was way beyond my, my capabilities. Yeah. Did you ever wonder, like, I'm a writer. Why am I doing this? Why am I bothering with this? What, what was exciting to you about starting a company other than the obvious? The money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're a writer. You needed money. Yes. But there was another circumstance in, 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 in my life, which is that I, I had sort of bottomed out as a, as a writer on an, on an early on. I'd written my first book, which in which was published in 1979, um, and um, you know, and I was kind of briefly the toast of the town, and uh, got a, a rather large contract to write a novel. Um, the first book was journalism, but it was very new journalismy. So therefore, um, um, my publisher said, "Oh, you sh- you should be writing a novel. You can tell stories." Um, I, no one said you should be writing a novel about anything. It was just like, go write a novel. So I took the money, of course. Um, one of the issues in my career is always I'm, I take the money and then I get in trouble. But anyway, um, I took the money and could not write this book for a, quite a long time. You know, really, probably it was six years, maybe even seven years of full-time waking up every day and starting on page one. I mean, it was the worst time of my life. It was nearly broke me. Horrific. I mean, and I just didn't know what to do. And I, and, I, um, and, and I felt the promising career that I had had just drifted away. You know, suddenly I had no agents. The publishers wanted the money back. I was a defeated and forgotten person in my own mind anyway. And I had a close friend, a college friend who had, um, who had gone to Wall Street, uh, you know, and made a ton of money already. So, you know, this is sort of mid eighties, a ton of money, you know, and he had started his own, you know, made this money and started his own firm and, you know, was like, um, you know, amazing. And I remember he, year six or seven, he kind of sat me down and said, you've become an embarrassment to everyone who knows you. Um, you have got to stop. And then he said, so just come downtown. I'll give you an office and we'll do deals. First, I had no idea w- what deals were. And I didn't even quite know how to get downtown, a place I had never been uh, but I said, okay, I am on board. I will be there. Um, and, um, you know, and I hurried to get a, buy a suit and a briefcase. And suddenly I was on Wall Street. And it was the best time. Did you know what you were doing? No, no, I had no idea. But, you know, anything not to be writing. Um, <laughs> I'm sure the people, uh, the people whose money you were throwing around, I hope they didn't know that this was uh, in lieu of writing a novel. Um, yeah, and, and and it it actually, you know, so you know, we did a, a whole, you know, a bunch of deals, made some money, and had a great time, and that's what led me into into the internet business. You know, so I'm in this internet business, not thinking. Um, I should be writing. I am grateful, in fact, for not having to write. And then everything collapsed. 
and it was like, well, well, what can I do now? Um, I can only do really one thing, which is return and try to write something. And that's when I wrote this book, Burn Rate, which sort of put me back into the writing business. Okay. Oh, so this, okay, now we're putting the pieces together. So then you, at what point did you become known as a, you know, person who was writing about powerful people? It was, it was off of this was, was Rupert Murdoch? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, you know, Burn Rate was, you know, was filled with, you know, writing about people in the technology business. Um, so that was immediately, and it was writing written in a way that, um, you know, no one was certainly no one in the technology business was was writing, and and maybe nobody in quite in journalism. It was, um, um, I, you know, first I'm I've always been a kind of a funny writer, and funny in a way that allows I'm I'm funniest when I mean this, so. I, as a matter of fact, I remember some year, years later, Nick Denton, the person who founded founded Gawker, would say that burn rate was um, one of his inspirations, and I was horrified because I thought Gawker was um, was you know mean and destructive, but nevertheless, but also I, funny. That I makes could, sense. Yes, I could kind of see his point. Um, um, and then from that, because of that book. Um, you know, then I got this, you know, then New York magazine hired me and, you know, that was, um, I mean, for me, you know, New York magazine and its voice and its audience kind of matched seamlessly. So, right. Okay. So this leads me to, um, a piece that you published in 2012 that I have to say is one of my favorite essays of all time. I can't tell you how much I admire this piece. It's called, uh, it was called A Life Worth Ending, about your mother's final years and the cost of her care. Um, it's kind of a departure for you. I'm not sure that I've seen anything else by you quite like this. Um, it's a really brutal piece, but also a compassionate piece. Uh, and so I'm hoping that you can just kind of talk about the piece and why you decided to write it, why you decided to publish it. I, I can imagine why you wanted to write it, but publishing it is a different thing. And uh, what the repercussions were, if any. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I can talk talk about it because first thing, it makes me weep still. Um, I'm just going to pass on that. Okay. Okay. Wow. You're, you're, you're disappointing a lot of people who, who really admire the piece. Well, I mean, it's funny that you're, it's funny that you don't want to talk about it because not to talk about me in this interview, but I wrote a piece about my about my mother, um, a different kind of piece, but also really, really brutal. And it's the kind of thing uh, that I only finished it because I decided I would never publish it. And then unfortunately, a couple of people read it and said, well, I hate to tell you, this is probably the best thing you ever wrote. And uh, vanity takes over. And I ended up, I, I did publish it. I published it in the context of a, of a book of essays. I did not hand it over to a magazine. But it's one of those things that I think it was it was worth it. I know it was worth it on a creative level to publish it, but I still don't think it was worth it on a personal level. I have a lot of guilt over the people who were undoubtedly hurt by the piece, but uh, I guess the art monster in me, the 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 art side wins. You know, the creative side wins over the personal side, and there's a kind of there's a kind of tyranny I think in in all of us. So w- without making you talk about the piece per se, like d- 
Does any of this resonate? Do you see yourself as an art monster? No. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in, in certain instances, probably. In terms of this piece, no. I felt it was an important story to tell, um, uh, a situation that many people f- were facing and would face. And, and, and I felt that I, I was just in the in the middle of it at that moment it, the experience was was so immediate um that that i was you know i was in a kind of a unique position and and should do it and i know you don't want to talk about it so i'm just you can just you know n- nod silently but i mean she's still alive at the end of the piece and um you know, it's one of those things where, you know, when I teach writing, I always say, don't write about something until it's sufficiently in the past. You can't have control over the situation until you've you've processed it. People come often to my classes or something and they're like in the middle of a divorce or in the middle of a difficult relationship and they're trying to sort of write about it in, in real time. But I, I think in this case, you wrote about something that was going on in the present and you nailed it nonetheless. So I just think there's an incredible well, testament was, to your yeah. craft. You know, but but also the circumstance, it, it was over. It was over, but it wasn't over. Um, but that was sort of the the, the, the point. It because was she had over. dementia. Yeah. So it was, yeah. I mean, there was, there was nothing left except that it went on. Um, well, yeah. And I will never... And on and on. Yeah. You, you describe... Uh, the apartment that she lived in um, as a, you know, in, in a sort of apartment. I, it was like a complex or something for people who had needed round the clock care. You described it as a sort of pre-coffin and that has never left my mind. It's such, it's such a concise and perfect way to describe that. Well, you said your mother was a reporter. Where was she a reporter? Uh, a newspaper called the Patterson Evening News in Patterson, New Jersey. So were there things about her approach to reporting that were just instilled in you from the beginning? What, what about her work lives in you still? Um, she was a reporter. Um, you know, the, 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 the level of, of, of reflexive curiosity was kind of irresistible. You just saw her, you know, she was always in any circumstance. Um, uh, you know, there was a, uh, there was a methodicalness and a, um, um, and a, and a kind of relentlessness, you know, she got it. Um, I mean, she was always pursuing whatever it was, she was always pursuing it. And, um, um, and she was a good writer, good writer, fast writer. Uh, I, I remember admiring this, the incredible speed, the typewriter, you know, the clacking on, um, um, you know, and you, and you had you had the feeling that you you know that she possessed, um, uh, she, uh, she possessed this 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 ability, this innate ability, or this learned ability. But it was something that you that you that you wanted for yourself. Oh, that's interesting. Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, you just wanted to be able to make the typewriter sound like that. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. Uh. You know, we haven't talked about your your work about the your books about the Trump administration in this podcast. You've you've talked about them enough, and I don't really think there's any point in going into great detail about them here. But 
you are known for having had extraordinary access to people in the Trump administration, Steve Bannon and others. I, I don't we don't need to dwell on that, but just in terms of your philosophy as a reporter and as a writer, what do you say to people who say it, it, it couldn't possibly have been this easy for you to be in these circumstances? Like, it, what's your answer to that? How'd you get there? You know, in, in a way, it is um, it is as easy as it looked. Uh, you knock on the door and someone answers it, even if it's the White House. Um, but uh, expanding that is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, pro- I mean, I think journalism is a product of, uh, as I said before, randomness, but, but, but also who you are, how you live, wh- what interests you've taken, how you've pursued things, um, so that there is an organic nature to the randomness. So, in 2016, March, I believe, I am walking across the, or the, the Orlando airport. And, and, you know, 20 feet in front of me, some guy sees me and clearly recognizes me, drops his bags, um, rushes over, you know, gives me an embrace you know, says, oh, you've been doing great work and God, it's great to see you. And, and I have no idea who this is. Um, I just totally, I mean, this has happened to me, me before. So you think, okay, well, it will come to me. Um, and it doesn't come to me. And, uh, you know, I, I pretend I know him and he goes one way and I go the other. And I think, God, um, and, um, some weeks later, I see an article about Breitbart, Breitbart News, and there's a picture, and and I see the guy, the Breitbart guy. That's the guy who greeted me in the airport, and that made this made it made even less sense to me. Why would he be greeting me, this you know right wing person? I don't have a right wing bone in my body, um, and you, you know it was kind of puzzling, and ultimately, you know, I figured. It transpired that, you know, I have had this relationship which goes way back with Roger Ailes. You know, and again, this is outside of all, you know, goes to Murdoch and all kinds of other things. And, and it never really mattered to Ailes that I had, didn't have a right wing bone in my body. We got along. Um, and he had said, mentioned something about about um about stuff about my work to bannon and and anyway that that became the nexus of the uh of uh or or, or the reason uh for bannon's greeting in the orlando airport which then in turn became the way into the um the trump campaign um so Th- that sort of randomness was combined with a lot of other things that had that had um, uh, a lot of other aspects of my career and interest and relationships, and then suddenly I'm in the White House. I mean, one of the uh, the I mean, there's many extraordinary things about the book, but I think it one thing that just stayed with me it really just reinforces the degree to which there's no 
there's no organization to this organization. You know, one thing when you get into arguments with conspiracy theorists is that they seem to think that there's some sort of cabal at the top that is so tightly organized that it could orchestrate any number of uh, acts of malfeasance. And, And in fact, everything's just chaotic. Nobody has their act together enough for that to be the case. So is that just, were you just sort of witnessing that every day? Were you? Oh, every, every day. Yeah. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And everybody, I was not the only one witnessing Everybody there was witnessing this and aware of this. I mean, it was, um, I, I mean, it was not just an extraordinary experience for me. It was an extraordinary experience for everyone in that White House. I mean, in, in the rolling uh, groups of people who the people who rolled out the people new people who rolled in everybody and this is i mean we're t- this is at a hundred percent everyone who was in there was uh, you know flabbergasted in the end found it incomprehensible and this goes right up until you know january 6 or uh, um uh 2020 I mean, I mean, that's why, you know, you know this whole, and the Democrats, you, you know, with this constant effort to impose logic and cause and effect on this are always left in the, in the, in, in the dust. I mean, you know, holding and holding nothing in their hands because it is just pure craziness. Um, Trump, Trump is a crazy person and what he does from moment to moment has, um, um, has has no basis in cause and effect. Why were so many people going along with it, though? Like, for instance, somebody like Sean Spicer, who was clearly miserable and losing his mind. I never understood why he didn't just have his Howard Beale moment at the podium, just loses shit and say, I, I've, I've, I've had enough and walk out. Wouldn't that well, be a good me, career me, move? Well, except yes, but no one has had a Howard Beale moment except Howard Beale. Um, so that just doesn't happen in in reality. In reality, people are um, they don't know what to do. You know, they're they're in you're in the White House. That obviously means something. You're part of the Republican Party, and this is now true th- throughout the Republican Party. Nobody knows what to do. You're trapped in a circumstance. Um, and, you know, and Sean Spicer ultimately got out of there because um, he couldn't couldn't stand it another moment. And I mean, and that was that's that's true almost of everyone. And, but, you know, wh- you know, what do you do? The guy is the president of the United States that that has some meaning, doesn't it? You know, and so and, and it doesn't as it happens. And, you know, but I'm the person who came along and, and, and said that the people the people there who are attached to that—I mean, that's the luxury I have. So I'm not attached to it. Um, but the people who are attached to it are, you know, trying to justify, trying to find cause and effect, and then they don't. And so, what do they do? Well, they talk to me for one thing. But but I don't know. I mean, these are—you know—nobody's a hero here. Every, everybody is trying to deal in a in a very very, um, you know, in existentially unanticipated, to say the least, circumstance. What do you think is going to happen in 2024? Is Trump going to be back? Uh, yeah, well, Trump has to be back. What, what would he can't be Donald Trump um, without being the once and future president? 
I mean, he, I, I don't think he particularly wants to be president. I mean, it was not a job that he particularly enjoyed, but he enjoys being Donald Trump. So therefore, that and those two things have joined. So the only thing that, the only way around this for him is if he finds a, a, a grievance that's even bigger, makes him even bigger than running for president or being president. Which, that's kind of unimaginable. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the the fix he's in right now. Um, but uh, but if he could say, you know, uh, I mean, if he possibly could he blame it on forces in the Republican Party for stealing the nomination from him, something you know, some something like that, in which he gets to to yet be the. Um, the undisputed king of some portion of the Republican Party. That, that's a, that's a, um, there's a scenario that I'm working toward here that I haven't exactly gotten yet. And, and presumably he would get elected. No, no, he would never, he, he won't be elected. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, no, that's, that's part of the fix he's in. He probably understands that. I, I mean, he, the, the you you have to appreciate the 2020 campaign was a, a, a colossal um, calamity. The Republican campaign, you know, in in August they're down 200 million dollars in the hole. Um, um, in the the last month of the campaign, he's outspent three to one by the challenger. You know, people are 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 essentially stealing from the campaign all all over the place. They cannot run a campaign. Donald Trump cannot run a campaign. And a, you know, a, a national political campaign is an incredibly complicated management tasks. Um, I mean, you know, not only do you have to raise an enormous amount of money in a in a in an efficient way, um, but you also have to spend it in an efficient way and very quickly. It's way beyond the capabilities and interests of of, of Donald Trump. And, and he won't hire anybody who can properly do this because he, you know, is incapable and unwilling to surround himself with anybody who's smarter than he is. Hmm. Okay. I hope you're right. I, I had somebody on pretty good authority say that it was inevitable, a very insider type of political strategist, but okay. I, I, believe me, I know more than he does or she. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, I have been as close as you can get to this mess. And it's not, it is just, you cannot, you know, you cannot win an election by sheer, even, let's assume he's popular, popularity alone. Um, sheer, um, um, uh, you know, devotion of the voters alone. You've got to run a, um, a, a, a reasonably competent campaign which he cannot do. Okay. Let's hope that's true. Well, just um, to wind things down here, I, I want to come back to really what I wanted to talk to you about at Root, which is your feelings about the relationship between the media and, I guess, ideas. Like, do you think that there is any hope for a kind of um, a, a way for the creative class to participate in public discourse and, you know, media on a large scale 
that is going to ever be as satisfying as it was back in the 70s when people were writing 10,000 word magazine pieces and it mattered that week. I, you know, um, maybe, I don't, I don't know. It's some, some transformation, which I can't now imagine is required, you know, and, 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 and maybe, you know, that goes away. I mean, what we had is now, you know, on sort of on the level of epic poetry, it's, it's, um, um, or the theater or whatever. I mean, it's a form that has, that has passed or there's no room for it or it has become technologically obsolete. Um, so wh- where does that, where does that leave um, we homeless guns? Um, I, I don't, I don't know out in the cold. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. I admire your, your work a lot, even though you, you don't want to talk about one of my favorite pieces ever, but um, I'll, I'll respect that. I just think, um, you know, you, you, you get talked about a lot in a lot of different ways, but you, you don't talk enough about, about your craft and your actual process. And so I really appreciate your, your taking some time to, to uh, cover those things. No, d- delighted. Because, in fact, it's really the only thing that I'm interested in. So the other stuff is um, access and this and that that I have to talk about is, is, um, um, is a pure byproduct of, of you know, trying to... Trying to write some um some decent and amusing sentences you're somebody i've been wanting to talk to for a long time so um, i'm glad you finally made it wonderful and uh well let's speak soon lunch okay you got it that was my interview with journalist michael wolf his latest book is too famous the rich the powerful the wishful the notorious He's also, of course, the author of Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, as well as several other books. Michael didn't want to talk about his 2012 New York Magazine piece about his mother and the care she required in her final years and the often dehumanizing effects of that care, even when it was the best possible care. But I strongly recommend that piece. It's called A Life Worth Ending, and it appeared in the May 18th, 2012 issue of New York Magazine. I've taught it to graduate students many times, um, and uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Once again, this is the Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support it, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash theunspeakable or visit the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and make a one-time donation of any level. You can also leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts, ideally positive. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time.